welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 16. Don't Snap on My Blue Suede Skirt Nobi was ready. Spousal death, she'd learned, did not automatically lead to libidinal shutdown for the survivor. For her, it seemed just the opposite, in fact, but it had been such a long time. Just another thing that had vanished into the corner kitchen cupboard of her past, like the bread maker. Sex, she had been telling herself, was something she deserved. Unfortunately, she had absolutely no clue how to go about getting it back into her life. For her, at least, human sexual interaction had sunk into the tar pits of a long-term marriage. With the exception of the bridge club and the church, Mike had managed to cast his shadow into every corner of her life. She'd once brought up the idea of having her own email account, but he'd refused to give her permission, demanding to know why she'd want to keep secrets from him. As if he has no secrets from you, one of her friends had snorted. Christ, Noby, sometimes... Noby was aware that many people knew more than she did about her husband. But she let it go. She always had. She'd been made to believe her mind had seized up through years of disuse and housecleaning. Years ago, during a heated family dinner table discussion, she'd mixed up the words superfluous and superlative. She didn't even remember what she was trying to say, but he had preempted her point by breaking in with, Your mother means superfluous, using his pitying voice. She actually tried to leave him once. A bad idea, badly planned and executed. She drove away in a snowstorm, got stuck in a drift, and had to call him to come and pick her up. Her daughter still referred to the episode as The Great Escape. There was no place she could have gone anyway. She didn't know of anywhere that wasn't also known to the rest of the family. Noby knew she wasn't cut out for divorce. She was a woman of faith, which included faith that things might work out in the end. When they didn't, she believed that Providence would intervene and take the necessary steps. And Providence did. The unwinding of the story still seemed incredible to her, like a binge-watched Netflix series each episode more outrageous and incredible than the last. When she'd walked in and found him alone and motionless on the bed, she first assumed he was dead drunk. Ultimately, she was right on both counts. Noby had spent a few minutes with his limp body before she called 911. She knew this was the last time they would ever be alone together. It was her last chance to, what, say goodbye? She had said it in her mind so many times that the real thing came as an anticlimax. Anticlimax. That might have been a good epitaph for their sex life. From the start, she had to admit that sex didn't do a lot for her, or sex with Mike didn't anyway, but he seemed to like it well enough, so she went along to get along. She'd made a stab at inventiveness and proactivity at first, but everything that worked for him left her cold. She could never properly get into the things he wanted her to, especially the outfits. So, of course, he would look for another outlet, if 
that was the right term, or was it an inlet? Eventually she gave up and just allowed him to take control. He's the one getting most of the pleasure, she thought. He should be the one doing most of the work. After Mike was gone, she preferred gone to dead. Somehow, my husband died seemed too dignified an act for the way he had expired. Nobody surprised herself by her efforts to make up for all the time she'd lost. As a single woman, well, a widow, technically, the stakes seemed higher at this point in her life, more urgent. She was anxious to mount the horse she'd never had a chance to ride. Although her daughters would have been shocked and appalled at how soon after the funeral she went looking, they knew nothing of the real timeline. It wasn't just the last few months. Her life had been bereft of sex long before it was bereft of Mike. Like the submerged part of an iceberg, the intimacy deficit stretched down into the inky depths of her marriage a dozen years or more. Nobody knew there was no time to waste. She had read somewhere that when she entered her fifties she'd be at the peak of her sexual potency, and she wanted to be prepared, although she wasn't quite sure what that entailed, or what potency was supposed to mean, practically speaking. Weren't men supposed to be the potent ones? Or had she missed something yet again? After living with one man for twenty-eight years, she figured she had a lot of learning to do, so she set about it with a diligence she'd not displayed since her high school science projects. Cosmopolitan proved a good primer, even if only to offer her a lexicon of names she'd never heard of for body parts she didn't know she had. And what on earth was the cowgirl position? Mike would have known. She wondered whether all this theoretical knowledge would make her better at it, or whether it would just make her aware of more things that didn't work for her the way they seemed to for everybody else. And all Noby's knowledge was still only theoretical. She'd missed out on Romantic Technique 101 as a teen. The sexual revolution of the 1960s had arrived and left before she was born, leaving her confused and unfulfilled. Her flower generation parents had probably been more liberal and worldly than she ever was. She could remember only two serious romantic opportunities at university. Neither had ended well. On the first occasion, she was in such a hurry to get the poor boy's turtleneck sweater off him that it got stuck when she pulled it over his head. Letting him remove his horn-rimmed glasses first, she later thought, would have helped. He finally couldn't stand to look at his headless body writhing around the room, arms still in sleeves, trying to escape his clothing like some thwarted Houdini. She bolted from the scene and locked herself in the bathroom. It was the first time she had done this since she was thirteen years old, but she decided it was indicated in these circumstances. The other guy broke up with her on their third evening together, while he was undressing her. This isn't working, he whispered into her hair. I think it's a new kind of hook. No, I mean us. It's nearly impossible to look indignant and outraged while trying to stuff yourself back into a bra that's flapping in the breeze. So she threw it at him. Smiling, he lobbed it smoothly back to her and walked out of her dorm room. As she stood there with her underwear balled up in her hand, all she could think to yell after him was, You, you, tit! Back in those days, her youthful plans for romance seemed to end up splatted on the canyon floor, like the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons. Sometimes she could see, literally see, that falling chunk of cliff, pulling her feet down with it while the rest of her remained suspended in the air for a moment, to contemplate yet another failure. When she met Mike, the need to manage her sex life evaporated. 
In a way, it was a kind of relief, but every so often she wondered if she'd been deprived of an important life skill. Now, all those years later, that skill seemed more important to her life than ever. She thought she might once have been considered attractive, and she set about to try to recapture this state. Someone in the choir had once told her she looked like Jennifer Jason Lee. Milby didn't know who that was, so she looked her up on IMDb. She wasn't really up on movie stars. Ask me about carrot cake, she'd say. Ask me about signing a kid up for swimming lessons, or returning a piece of rejected clothing to the Gap. Ask me about keeping below people's radar. The first photo she found was from a movie called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and she thought she must have gotten the name wrong. Then she realized the movie was quite old, and that the actress would have aged at least a bit. When she finally came to a shot of her as Daisy in The Hateful Eight, she allowed that she could understand how people might make the connection, especially around the mouth. Ms. Jason Lee appeared to be fairly short, which fit, but she was also good-looking, except for in The Hateful Eight, but that was probably makeup, and had a great figure. The figure part did not agree with Noby's image of herself. Maybe once, fine, but not now, and not for a long time. Still, she could admit that under certain conditions, some of her might appeal to certain healthy, straight, adult males. Okay, nobody's perfect, she thought, but parts of me are passable. If you don't mind an over-the-hill body and over-permed hair. In the parts department, she had no idea whether men were still supposed to like the waxed look. For years she had dutifully trooped over to the salon every June to get ripped, as she thought of it. Mike had mildly insisted on it back when it was first a thing. But long before he was out of the picture for good, she decided to drop the practice. She'd always disliked the look, and, damn it, it hurt to get it done. Men never realize the organization and preparation that goes into romantic projects, her friend Cheryl had told her one evening at choir. The choice of wardrobe, grooming, venue, lighting, the sheer stage management of it all. Some of the other altos started listening in, and she noticed a couple of them nodding. It suits them to think they're the initiators, the seducers, Cheryl went on. But in real life, any successful date is a carefully choreographed, orchestrated, X-chromosomed production, from overture to finale. Especially the finale. If it all works out, it'll be worth the effort, a work of art. Feed him a steak, by the way. With any luck, he'll need it. Nobi looked on the dating site, but there seemed to be so many, each one with its own specialty. Hatch.com, for singles who wanted to have a child. Swingpling.com, catering to married people wanting to get out a bit more with other married people. And one called Ballandchain.com, for wives who were into dominance. She even tried one sweetly named MaryWidow.com, aimed at women with deceased partners. It was all too overwhelming and depressing even to contemplate. She decided to reassess. The universe was obviously sending her a message about sex. Back off, the message said. You are not qualified for this. Ignore that sexual potency they say is just over the horizon. Take up five-pin bowling. It was time she accepted it. In the election of love, she was last past the post. But then, things changed. This time it was meant to be. This time, it was Chuck.
Chuck Gibbons worked at Daggett's funeral home, although at first she didn't know him by name, only by his smile. She had caught a glimpse of him holding the front door during her late husband's visitation, in March, during which a frowsy woman nobody knew had addressed the closed coffin with the poignant words, Oh, Mickey, why'd you have to check out this way? Nobody saw at an instant that this Daggett's fellow had the type of uncomplicated open face, lanky frame, and careless wardrobe that attracted certain women. And she knew she was one. He smiled at her again when she left that evening. She spotted him at the end of May when the choir sang at the Dickerbox funeral service. He had to supervise the rolling in and rolling out of what seemed to her a very large coffin to Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, which no one sang except the choir and one ancient-looking Dickerbach relative whose roomy eyes showed a spark of recognition when the tune by Haydn began to play. During the service, Noby was sure he was staring across the chancel at her from his place next to the casket. "'That guy keeps looking at me,' she whispered to Midge Meyer, the alto who sat beside her. Midge was inaccurately named, being several divisions above flyweight. The hard-working spanks she wore did little to keep her from spreading laterally across the pews, and the women in Midge's row were used to being edged gradually sideways during the course of a service. When she processed up the aisle at the head of the choir on Sunday mornings, she reminded Noby of a John Deere harvester moving slowly along the highway with a line of cars behind it. She sang with a tone that a charitable listener might call very focused. What guy? The funeral home guy standing next to the casket. Midge looked across the chancel and appraised him. He's imagining your nipples. He's what? Noby squeaked. Father Bannon, who was committing the body, looked up from his prayer book and frowned. That's what men do, said Midge. When they look at you, they imagine you're okay, said Noby, looking down hard at her knuckles, which were turning pink from gripping the recessional hymn music. But that smile. Noby decided she had to meet him. On a sunny afternoon, a few days later, she walked through the gilded front entrance of Daggett's funeral home. A very young woman was sitting at the reception desk. Her brass name tag said, Shayla. Good afternoon, Shayla said, looking sad. How can I help? I'm here to visit someone, Toby answered. Ah, yes, the name? Um, Bartlett, she said. Shayla clicked her mouse and looked at her computer. I'm sorry, I haven't anyone on my list by that name. Are you sure they're here? Oh, no, said Noby. That's my name. Shayla looked relieved. I'm certainly not here to visit myself. Shayla laughed tentatively. I'm here to see a young man. Ah, do you know the young man's name? Shayla asked, looking at her computer screen again, apparently glad to be back on track. No. Oh, said Shayla, crestfallen again. But he has a nice smile. And I am sure they have given him back that same smile, Shayla said reassuringly. They... I saw him at a funeral about a week ago, said Noby, trying to help this poor young woman. You saw him at another funeral? Shayla was rising from her chair. Yes, he was standing beside the casket. I'd better get my boss, Shayla said quickly. Wait, said Noby. She had figured it out. The young man works here. Oh, Shayla said, absorbing this new information. Oh, you must mean Chuck. Her laugh was shrill. Yes, he does have a nice smile. 
He's in the back. I'll call him. After his shift was over, Chuck and Noby went out for coffee. He remembered her perfectly from the church and seemed genuinely interested in hearing about her life. He sat quietly and listened to her answers to his simple question, which was unlike anything she'd experienced in her life. The years between their ages seemed to attract rather than repulse him. He was fascinated that she'd played in her high school band. She had to tell him what a bassoon was. Even then, he didn't look convinced that it was a legitimate musical instrument. He asked her if Nobi was short for anything. Zenobia, she said, a dumb name my hippie parents gave me. He had never heard the name before, a fact that somehow drove her wild. He'd been a paramedic in Toronto before coming to Thornside. He's seen death close up, she thought, something we have in common. She couldn't take her eyes off him. For one thing, it seemed like she'd finally met a man who was completely unaware of how attractive he was. He also appeared to be drawn to her, and she wasn't about to question why in heaven's name that should be. It was mutual attraction, pure and simple, and that was enough for her. She began to plan once again. A few chaste dates did nothing but lubricate her resolve to seduce this man by any means possible. On a Friday night in mid-June, she went to Chuck's house on the island to cook him dinner. This man she hoped might be different. This was it. She felt calm, but excited. She wanted him to know how much she wanted him, and she had a plan to start him off in the right direction. And she had the means. It had been while getting on the shopping shuttle to work forth a few days earlier that she had accidentally discovered the trick. She was climbing the steps onto the little bus when she was bumped from behind and she tripped. As she stretched her leg out to catch herself, she felt the snap buttons that were up the side of her blue suede skirt pop open one at a time until the skirt started to slide down her legs. Holding it around her like a giant blue diaper, she slunk back off the bus. Afterward, intrigued, she began to try undoing the buttons at home using only the forward motion of her leg. She channeled her distant past as a high school cheerleader, and with some practice, she was able to make her skirt fly across the room simply by kicking out sharply. She decided that her blue suede skirt was the perfect accessory to guide Chuck across the vast no-man's land that divides close acquaintance from carnal knowledge. After she had cooked a steak for him and boozily coaxed off most of his clothes, she stepped away and kicked. The blue suede skirt flew through the air in a perfect arc, sailing past his head and smacking into the only lamp in the room. Both skirt and lamp crashed to the floor. In the sudden blue-tinted gloom, she thought she recalled him saying something about the lamp being given to him by his mother. She already had the familiar sinking feeling of things not going entirely to plan. Although she was getting more naked by the second, her man seemed to be looking more at the skirt and the broken lamp than at her. I'm dying up here, she thought, losing him. In a panic, she tore off her yellow silk blouse and vaulted astride him. Somehow, she possessed him. It was plain to her that they both would have enjoyed the encounter a lot more if they'd been able to ignore the smell of smoldering animal hide that was beginning to permeate the room. Her end game had been that they would spend the night together, wrapped in each other's arms. She would wake first and watch him sleeping, while she reapplied her makeup and straightened her hair. Instead, she eased herself immediately from where she had sunk onto his chest 
in a post-climactic lethargy of failure, hoping he wouldn't notice her climbing off him. He didn't seem to. His underwear was still hanging from one foot. She untangled her skirt from the lamp, which was now making a sort of buzzing noise like an angry wasp. Not looking at him, she swept her yellow blouse off the floor and turned toward the bathroom to get dressed, clutching the remnants of her clothes around her. Note to self, do not dramatically tear open your blouse if you are planning to wear it later on. Noby, Chuck was sitting on the edge of the sofa bed. I'm sorry. He sounded a little breathless. You're sorry, she thought, and then, God, that man's stomach is flat. I'm usually more... It was just that I didn't know what to expect, what you wanted from me. It wasn't obvious? Maybe a bit too obvious, he said. I wanted to watch you sleep. You threw your skirt at the lamp and jumped on top of me because you wanted to watch me sleep? I know it's a bit of a stretch. Speaking of which, that was a cool kick you did, as high as your head. I was a cheerleader in high school, but tonight I may have permanently damaged my hamstring. It's funny, isn't it, he said. She looked at him. When we men try all this stuff, we think we know exactly what we want. But when you take the lead, we're lost. This was the most he had ever said to her at once. Another milestone had been passed. I'm sorry about your lamp. The lamp? Oh, that. I've been meaning to get rid of it anyway. It was here when I moved in. She went to him once again, this time more slowly. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week. Thank you.